Well, it's my privilege to be with you this morning preaching God's Word. Just humbled that um, the pastors here would give me a chance to come and preach with you. Um, want to start by asking one question. Have you ever thought that you're going to leave one day? Like, have you ever just thought, like, man, I'm going to leave one day? I'm not talking about dying yet. We will. Uh, it's going to be a happy sermon. Uh, but you're going to leave one day. Or another way to put it, you're going to die one day. I told you, get to it quick. But we're all leaving something. And in the midst of preparing to leave, as Christians, we're called to be prepared, to prepare to leave while enduring the gospel. We do this in, by entrusting the gospel to faith, faithful men so they may teach others. In this very moment, God has sovereignly placed you in this room, sitting where you are. And he sovereignly orchestrated the place that you will go next. So you're either going to take a new job, okay? You're either going to get a promotion at work and have different co-workers. You're going to move to a different home and have new neighbors, but in your leaving, what you worship will determine so much of how well you leave. You either leave with a confident hope in Christ, or you leave with a sense of disparaging fear because what you had worshipped, where you were just leaving, was false. And it didn't produce the confidence you had hoped it would. So, what I want you to do, Okay? I want you to bow your head. And I want you to think about where you are right now. I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I prepared to leave? Am I prepared to leave? Just take a couple seconds and then we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, I'm humbled to be able to stand in front of your people this morning. I'm thankful that you had called my family to be a part of Mission Church. Lord, I thank you that in you orchestrating and sovereignly placing all of us where you are, Lord, I am humbled and so grateful that you have placed me right where I am in this very moment. Because, Lord, the story that I was writing for myself would have not put me here. So, Lord, I ask as the word is preached this morning. We will ask the tough and hard questions of how am I prepared and am I prepared to endure in the gospel through suffering so that others may take the gospel after I am done and gone to the nations. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, I was not a happy camper. I was about 15 years old. Uh, my parents took me out of my passions, pleasures, pursuits, comforts, joys, happiness, everything. Like, just said, we're moving. Now, it wasn't that quick. It took about a year and a half. And that made it worse because you had more time to dwell on it. And your friends were like, hey, so what about next year? I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to live here. And ultimately, we moved to Bowling Green. But quickly, my life was found out to be built on 
on, on so many lies, so many idols, that ultimately I came to Bowling Green with, Bowling Green with this disparaging fear because the things that I worshipped ultimately inflicted great fear because they didn't produce what I hoped that they would produce for me. And so when I came to Bowling Green, it was just this intensity to try to regain that control. And as I've grown and matured in my faith, I've had to come and reconcile this very clear thing is that we're always leaving something. And so ultimately, this story that is being written that you think you're writing for yourself, really you're not writing at all. Is that God is unveiling his story for us as we go each day. And then one day, our life will expire and we will die. People will either just talk about how you were a good person at your funeral and they say, man, he just did such good things. Or I think in our funerals, people are going to be saying, man, they endured through so much suffering of this life for the sake of the gospel and the discipling of others. And I pray that that is what is heard by many who are standing in and around our families because they will look at us and go, man, the way that that person lived their life I mean, was it about good deeds? I mean, it was about they endured through so many trials. They finished well. So today we're looking at Paul. And Paul's in this very similar scenario. Very much different than I think any of us will actually be in a sense. But the things that he's processing is, I'm about to depart. You see, here is Paul sitting in the dungeon, a cold, dark dungeon, being chained. In 1 Timothy, house arrest, 2 Timothy, like, we're going to bound you down. And he's writing to Timothy, and he's unpacking all of these truths. He's saying to Timothy, with great confidence, like in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he's saying, I've fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He looked at his life and the suffering he has endured in Christ. And then, just as in Philippians 4, 21, he's basically saying, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's last breaths were going to be used to make sure the gospel would go forward well after he was gone. It's beautiful. He's in chains, he's in a dark dungeon, most likely sitting in human waste, and he's sitting here going, I am the most joyful person on the planet because I know to live is Christ and to die is gain. But to do what Paul is saying... For the gospel to go forward, for it to be entrusted to other men, Paul knew men like Timothy would have to carry on the flame and endure much suffering. And make disciples who make disciples with the hopes of new churches being planted to the ends of the earth. Every person who stares death in the eyes will either have a confident hope or a disparaging fear. In the end, some will believe their actions between birth and death will determine where they will end up. But we know and we see in God's word, that is not what is described to us as truth, but rather what he has done for us to provide salvation. And in response to that, we seek to live a life of faithful obedience, enduring until the end. So here we saw, see Paul giving Timothy instruction to endure and entrust to the gospel. He begins by telling them in verse 2, 
And I agree. Why start me with an and, man? Come on. Can we start with a full sentence? That's what, no, I'm just kidding. So, but in what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here's, here's, here's how the succession is going. We have Paul, right? Walking the Damascus Road. Jesus literally collides with his life, blinds him. He sees the gospel. And so Paul, he's saying, from me, Timothy, what you have heard from me, you then take to those that you're discipling. So those entrusting to faithful men. And then Timothy is, then Paul is telling Timothy, and then those that you are discipling will then go and disciple others. While Paul is in prison, writing with confidence to encourage Timothy to be faithful to the call and embrace suffering and join him in making disciples so the gospel can go forward. Back in a members meeting, this is us, back in a members meeting at Mission Church, a question was posed to us, I don't know if you remember this, but a question was posed to us on what was the biggest roadblock that kept us from not sharing the gospel with people. The most common answer given by, the, by our members, our family, was not feeling like we knew how or we felt ill-equipped. I would argue this is a common response that I've heard over the years from students who are just coming to know Jesus to people who are in their 80s. Why should this be a major concern for us? You see, the one thing that Paul was fighting not to see happen in the spreading of the gospel and the planting of churches was a regress from the clear biblical call to make disciples. He, I don't know if Paul feared that Timothy was going to regress, but I think he really, as all of us do, we wonder, after I'm gone, will this continue? I think we can easily be paralyzed by fear. By the fear and lack of knowledge to make disciples. And I'm going to push into that later. But this uniqueness of the call to endure is rooted in the promise that we are all leaving something. Either by new direction or death. And since we are all going somewhere in this journey called life, we must embrace the command Jesus gives us when he is descending. It's very simple. He says, simple, said, hard to do at times. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. He's literally saying, Jesus is saying, go. And it's literally saying, as you are going, make disciples. So as you're preparing to leave, you should always be teaching and equipping and admonishing and, and pursuing those with truth so that they can then go and do that with others. This one simple command to entrust this message to faithful men so they may teach others is the least earthly, earthly reward to secular men. You're like, what? Well, let me walk this out. The worldly man would call this punishment. Because you're literally denying yourself of the passions of this world. You're literally laying down your life for your brother. You're, you're saying, what I have to gain in this world, I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And so now I want to shepherd you. I want to walk with you so you may know this same truth. Many believe Paul to be in sin because he was in prison. 
Jesus and Paul promise you would face suffering in this life. But in your eternal reward, it is the most rewarding and sanctifying to your relationship with God. Paul caught, Paul caught the perfect picture of Jesus displayed of discipling the twelve that changed the world. I think what's so unique about what Jesus is telling the disciples in Matthew 28, he's not saying, okay guys, here's how we're going to assimilate the best group of people to hear the gospel preached. I'm going to teach you how to bring 5,000 people in. You've got to have a good speaker. You've got to have lights. If you really want the spirit to move, you've got to have some fog machines. Right? No. He's saying, walk with the twelve. You twelve that I have walked with, you then and go walk with others. One-on-one, individually. Saul, who became Paul, grafted into the same plan of seeking out the lost with hopes of seeing new churches planted by those discipled who then makes disciples. He spends his last days making sure Timothy was prepared to carry the torch of discipleship, making to entrust the message to faithful men and then pass on to others. So Paul continues on. He uses three examples to Timothy to help him. Some say Paul was a little tim- or Timothy was a little timid, but he gives him three pictures. He gives him the picture of a soldier, a picture of an athlete, and a picture of the farmer. And he was confident Timothy could relate to each of these examples. Paul begins with an invitation to Timothy. He tells him, come. Share in suffering as a good soldier for, of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Rather, be single-minded and disciplined to the active commander. In battle... You can learn a soldier's gaze and allegiance is to his commander. Nothing flinches his eye off his commander. Paul doesn't teach Timothy everything he must know for the call of making disciples. Rather, Paul points to the one who equips the believer. You see, in this picture of us being a good soldier and gazing and focusing on the commander... It's because Jesus is our commander. In battle, the commander isn't going to give you every single detail to every single move on the battlefield. He's going to give you one clear directive. We're going to take that region. We're going to take that hill. We're going to take those people. In the same way, the soldier for Christ is called to move forward and press on to the call to follow Christ. You won't get every answer. And you won't know every single detail in your pursuit to enduring to the end. What do I mean by that? I think we can get paralyzed to move forward in life in fear of making the wrong decisions. I think at the same time, God doesn't give us all the answers immediately before we make a decision. Because if we had all the answers, why would we need God? You'll begin to think you're the commander. Rather, a good soldier is one who stays single-minded. He trusts the commander. He trusts the commander's done the due diligence to know where he is supposed to go. He trusts the commander's not going to lead him into uh, being ambushed. He follows the commander. He does exactly what the commander instructs him to do. How does Paul instruct us to do this? 
We see in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Paul says this. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, the soldier doesn't have to have all the answers. Rather, he just needs to not get entangled in civilian pursuits. To take his gaze or his eyes off of the commander. You cannot take your gaze and your eyes off of Jesus. But I think we're so easily tempted to do that. I think we begin to question God at times are you sh- by saying, Are you sure that's the best plan or direction for my life? Why do we have to have all our things in order? God, you really don't care about us or what is best for me. Can't you see nothing's going right anymore? See, to be a good soldier for Christ, we must not allow ourselves to be enticed and easily entangled by the things of this world. We must keep our eyes on the commander. He is the way into salvation. The most decorated soldiers are not remembered by the stripes on their chest. By what they knew or by what they achieved. But rather by the stripes of suffering they endured for their commander. Their infantry and their country. Those that ran into battle, took on the enemy fire, got wounded and sacrificed their life. A true soldier for Christ runs into battle for his commander. 1 Timothy 6.12 Paul's telling Timothy earlier on. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. and About which you made the good confession the presence of many witnesses. Will you find joy in Jesus today? Will you live single-minded? And lay everything down for the sake of those that are right now dead in their trespasses or longing for guidance. Consider the many men and women Uh, Girls and boys that have grown up without mothers and fathers looking for someone to shepherd them, to teach them, to equip them for the battle that's ahead. Heard recently in a sermon where he talked about the amount of men that are preaching in churches that did not have fatherly figures and no one to teach them. But here they are preaching God's word. Men, women, we as believers are called to equip the saints Those without a teacher, a brother, or sister in the faith, they need you. To be influenced by you so they are not learning what it means, so they so they are learning what it means to not follow the sins of the flesh, but learn how to avoid the traps of the following uh, following worldly civilian pursuits and how to avoid the lies of the enemy. That they hold no value and work to their creator. It takes you and I to flee those pursuits that so easily entangle us for our own selfish gain. Paul continues to equip Timothy by focusing on the athlete that compliments the soldier. He says this, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. See, during this time, during the Olympiad, every athlete who was going to compete in the Olympiad had to commit to 10 months of physical training. This is crazy. Listen to what had to happen. If you did not complete the 10 months of physical training, you couldn't compete. Not only did you have to complete the 10 months of physical training, you also had to sign uh, an oath swearing you had done that. 
This is what Paul is most likely referring to when he says according to the rules for Timothy. I think it's pretty clear there are three types of people in this room right now when it comes to exercise. There's some who love it, so they do it. There's some who hate it, but they do it from January to February. And then, some of y'all get that in a second. And then there's some who just hate exercise and just don't do it. In the very similar way, I think in the Christian church, there are some who love Jesus and they pursue him and pursue others. And there are some that say that they love Jesus, but act like they do, but just to gain some types of status, reward, or personal gain. And there are some that hate Jesus, and they just don't pursue him at all. In our relationships with Christ, we have to go through suffering, and very quickly, suffering shows who are the true believers. I have many people in my life, man, who claim to be walking with Jesus, but when it got hard, man, they just got choked out. They got choked out. Paul is telling Timothy that the athlete, as he prepares for the, the competition, he does this through discipline and sacrifice. And it's the same for us as Christians. Is that discipline and sacrifice prepares a Christian for suffering like an athlete prepares to, com- to compete. Philippians 3, 7, But whatever I gain, I, 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 had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, an athlete trains with undeniable devotion to increase their skill, their stamina, and outplay their opponent. And while doing it according to the rules. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 26. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives a prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. To experience the effective ministry, you must live a life not to a thing or a trophy, but to God. Listen to what theologians Brian Chapel and Kent Hughes say about devotion. They say this, single-minded devotion to a thing, like a sport, a philosophy, or a cause, can turn you and I into a machine. But when it is given to Christ, who is perfect God and perfect man, whose commands are consonant with perfect love and wisdom in our highest good, then we become what we ought to be. It can stand tall even in suffering. We must purposely focus on him and willingly join with his followers in suffering, hardship, like good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Paul's way of describing his own commitment and self-control links winning, which is defined in the context in terms of spiritual attainment, with discipline and determination. The attempt to avoid suffering... Here's what's scary for the American church. The attempt to avoid suffering or situations that might lead to suffering would among be a breach of the rules. This is, this is what scares me for a lot of us and, and even those that will come um, after us. 
is that the prosperity gospel is so damning and false to this basic thing to avoid suffering. They would argue the suffering you are going through is because of a lack of devotion or faithfulness or a lack of sacrifice because God's plan for your life is for health, wealth, and prosperity. So you must be doing something wrong. So you need to give more. You need to do more. You need to buy this prayer cloth. You need to be healed. That's why you're sick. You're sick because you're in sin. I'm not saying that doesn't happen from time to time. I believe it does. You see, you and I may not enjoy working out the bodily, body physically, but spiritually, you must work out the gospel in your life and see the call to live a life embracing suffering so you may be equipped to entrust the gospel to faithful men who in turn teach others. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you work out your spiritual bones? Do you plead with God Do you draw near to God so he will draw near to you? Do you pursue him with a reckless abandon in such a way that when you look at your life, it looks foolish to the world? Paul goes on to tell Timothy in verse 6, It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I've never farmed. My wife, and not I, did a garden this year. It was unbelievable. Like, I don't, we've two, three zucchinis, right? But one that was like tall as Colton, uh, right? So, but the small work that I watched her put into that garden gives me even greater respect for the farmer. It's insane. You work tirelessly as a farmer. You experience constant toil, plowing, sowing, tending, weeding, reaping, and storing. You have regular disappointments, frost, pets, pests, disease. For us, it was our pets. Disease, too much rain, or not enough rain. Everything happens very slowly while you wait for the crop to grow. My farming friends are working sun up to sundown, six days a week. Like they literally eat breakfast, they farm, they eat dinner, then they go to bed and they wake up and do it all over again, especially this time of year. It's rewarding in the sense that the farmer looks at what he was able to accomplish for communities and his family, and the most rewarding and the most unrewarding because we live in a hand-to-mouth society. And never consider the painstaking work that went into putting that grocery item into your hand to feed your family. We just expect it to be there. When everyone's thinking about tracking down that farmer to say thank you for all they have done and sacrificed, it's quite embarrassing how little we appreciate the work of a farmer. It really is. Like, could you just pause and go, man, when's the last time I looked at that apple? Man, thank you, Jesus, that farmer who grew this apple. Ministry work is very much the same way. If you are 
actively pursuing Jesus and actively pursuing others, I will tell you, it, it, at times, it's just, it, it can be exhausting. And you're, I mean, it, it requires much strength, toil, struggle, and diligence, which ultimately, guess what that leads to? It leads to suffering. But it is the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 that gives us much strength and encouragement. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. At the end of the day, farming is much like discipleship and staying faithful until the end. You, without a doubt, a farmer can't control the exact yield a field produces in the same way you cannot save that person that you weep for. As I shared earlier, one of the struggles for, our, for, for us as believers, not just mission church, is to be faithful to seek the lost, make disciples while seeking to endure until the end because you don't know enough or don't know the right thing to say or thinking that person can't change. Let's just play the scenario out for the farmer. When the farmer plants a seed, you don't think he has a degree in horticulture. I can't even say the word, so I definitely don't have it. Agriculture, chemistry, whatever farming degree is out there. Right? Don't get me wrong. Farmers know a lot and continue to do gain wisdom and knowledge for their trade as they do it. Speaking with the son of a farmer, he said this, My dad has farmed his whole life for his career, but I can confidently tell you he doesn't know all the science behind how a seed grows into a plant that produces a harvest. He knows the basis of what to do. Now, there are many things he has done and what other farmers have done to incorporate different technologies to increase a higher yield in their fields. A higher yield means a larger harvest, which needs more to sell. Here's my point. For far too long, I've heard excuses from many that I can't share my faith or disciple someone because I don't know what to do or know enough. You don't have to know everything. You just need to have a few key tools to get started. First, have a personal growing relationship with Jesus. If you don't have that, let me tell you, it's free. It is freely given by grace through faith. In Christ alone, he has come to reconcile you back to the Father. That the weight of your sin cannot outweigh the weight of grace that was shown on the cross. When Jesus willingly and perfectly went to the cross in the midst of our sin. He died a sinner's death. His blood was poured out to cover your sin that you try to cover every day with your acts. But then he went to the grave and he rose three days later. He did what no man could do. He conquered sin and death. He conquered your sin and death so you could be free. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. The Bible says that we will be saved. And that is not of your own doing. It is by grace. Secondly, have friends. Have friends. You're like, what? Have friends. You're like, well, what do you mean? Have friends who don't know Jesus or are young in their faith. Right? Have friends. Go make a friend and then pursue them with the truth that you know about Jesus. Thirdly, sit down with that friend and read with them. Teach them how to study it. Fourthly, this is very simple. When you don't have the answer, 
don't make it up. Go to those who've taught you. Here's a side note. A person who is asking the questions find greater respect for the person who says, I don't know the answer, but let's find that out together. On top of that, because when you admit limits, it points the teacher and the student to the unlimited God who knows all and is over all, which helps those with questions. Which helps those with questions know whom they need to turn to. If you teach in a way that makes you look like you have all the answers and the person you're teaching begins to think that they must know everything too so they can go teach someone else. When you don't know all the answers and you're confessional about that, you're teaching someone humility because you're showing that you have a need for counsel as well. See, the Christian doesn't know everything when he begins to walk with Jesus. But what he now has is faith and the ability to point others to the one who does. Faith in a God that wants to do the same thing in the hearts of those just like their own. Listen to this. Don't be paralyzed to act by what you don't know, but rather be motivated to act because of who you do know. I'm going to say that again. Don't be paralyzed to act by what you don't know, but rather be motivated to act because of who you do know. Too much of discipleship has been centered on the teacher and the wealth of knowledge they supposedly have rather than on the true discipleship maker, King Jesus. I think we look at a discipleship book, we read the discipleship book, then we go, well, gosh, I can't do it like that. That dude's way smarter than me. I can't make disciples. You see, I don't think we have a knowledge issue because we got plenty of it. I think what we have, very confessionally, I'm saying this to myself and you and everyone that can hear this, is that we have an obedience issue. And the excuse we like to use is the lack of knowledge. I can tell you this, if you're doubting your inability to make disciples, you can chalk that up as a very simple yes. You'll never be equipped enough. You're not. You and I are never going to be equipped enough to make the perfect disciple. But we know the one who does all things perfectly. And he's the one who saved you and saved me. You will not have all the answers for those you're entrusting this message to. But you follow the one who does. You see, here's the thing. I know men sitting in grass huts right now who cannot read nor write, but have heard the gospel and continue to hear the gospel just basically read to them. And then they go and teach that to other people. This is not rocket science. God is not limited to your knowledge. You choose to limit God in your life when you choose not to be obedient and allow Him to work through you. The second thing we can learn from the farmer that Paul is teaching Timothy is the believer needs to enjoy the fruit that is harvested. Guys, I can't not tell you what gives me greater joy. is when I'm walking with someone in a discipleship relationship... And I see them move so far, and I'm like, he exceeded me. Praise God. You see, a great man who discipled me uh, was uh, by the man of Jeff Carlisle. He's a pastor here in town. He told me when I was in college, I was about 19 years old, he looked at me and he said, Brian, the only way this relationship is successful is if you go and disciple other people. I was like, what do you mean? Like, you're supposed to teach me. Like, I'm supposed to, you know, get spiritually stronger. He says, no, this relationship fails if you don't disciple other people. I'm telling you, that changed the trajectory of my life. 
It changed the trajectory of my life. And that now that I can find joy in seeing how others around me, that I'm able to have some really small glimpse of influence on and go, you know what, the goal of this relationship is that you go disciple other people. And I pray to God you exceed me. I hope you write I hope you write books that equip other believers. I hope you go to the nations and preach the gospel for all of eternity. I hope you die well. And you do that earnestly. And you entrust the gospel to godly men who will then entrust the gospel to others. The third thing we can learn from the farmer is there's a reward for hard work. Christians, are you working hard to disciple others? Are you working hard at just being a taker from others all the time? What are you sharing? What are you sacrificing and giving to others who need the truth you have received from the throne of God? The diligent farmer exemplified hard work. It was this kind of effort that promised to return a harvest. Activity of, activity of hard work connects to the theme of single-mindedness of the soldier and the discipline of the athlete. So that once again, the example does not endorse just any kind of activity, but specifically diligent and focused activity. Activity towards the cross, towards Jesus, towards the least, to those that need you to walk with them. For the farmer, a share of the crop is the reward. The focus for us is an eternal reward for faithfulness in the gospel ministry. See, the athlete receives a trophy that ends up, turns in, goes into a box. We get the reward of being with God for eternity. Rejoicing with the saints. Verse 7, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Church families, we sit here today holding the truth to all of life eternal and hold the good news that saved you that takes a person from death to life. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And the three examples we looked at this morning have the element of suffering, the soldier's single-minded devotion, the athlete's rigorous exercise, and the farmer's toil. They all have their reward. Listen to what C.K. Barrett says. Beyond warfare is victory. Beyond the athlete's effort is the prize. And beyond farming labor is the crop. So I leave you with this question. So I can say one thing to close is how the Lord giving you understanding. So as I say to you. How are you going to respond to your call to endure until the end? By entrusting the gospel to others, so the gospel may go forward to the ends of the earth. And so he may be glorified and worshipped by more saints tomorrow than there was today. Let's pray.